Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I want to invite your attention to God's Word this morning. Gospel of Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38 as we're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We come today to the end of chapter 3. I promised you when we started this series back months ago that periodically we would take breaks from Luke and examine some other biblical text. And so the end of chapter 3 marks uh, the end of the first section of Luke. It's a good stopping point. So uh, Lord willing, we will stop here and picking up in two weeks, we're going to look at the Roman road. We're going to talk for six weeks about personal evangelism. And I hope you'll be here for that. Now last Sunday we examined together the baptism of the Lord Jesus by John the Baptist. We concluded that Jesus was baptized ultimately because it was the will of the Father. And Jesus, the Son of God, always perfectly did and obeyed the will of the Father. In fact, he told John, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. That is, Jesus did not want to leave anything undone or unsaid that had been given him by the Father to do and to say. And we know that the Lord was pleased with the Son because an audible voice from heaven proclaimed that pleasure by saying, Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was there as well. And he affirmed that this was God's plan by descending from heaven as a dove and lighting upon Jesus. Of course, Jesus fulfilled his mission ultimately at the cross where it pleased the Father, we saw last Sunday, to accept the sacrifice of the Son to atone for the sins of all those he would save. This morning, we will see that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus also fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Depending on whose list you're using, um, we're told that there are over 400 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled perfectly by the life of Jesus. Now, last week we looked at just one of those. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he would be crushed or killed, and the purpose of that was to save many others. We call that the concept of atonement. But just in that one chapter of Isaiah, we find many other Messianic prophecies. For example, verse 5 predicted that he would be beaten with a scourge or a whip. In fact, the scripture says, by his stripes we are healed. Verse 7 says that he would be silent in front of his accusers, like a lamb to the slaughter. He uttered not a word. Verse 9 says that his burial would be with a rich man. And we know that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb of a very, very wealthy man. There, there are several other prophecies in the book of Isaiah that are fulfilled. Isaiah 9, 6 speaks of his incarnation. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the scripture describes the Messiah. Isaiah 7.14 even goes so far as to say that he would be born of a virgin, as he was. Isaiah 37.31 declared that he would be of the tribe of Judah. One of my favorite Messianic prophecies in the, in the little book of Micah, Micah 5.2, foretells that Jesus would be born in the little village of Bethlehem. And I think this is why Jesus reserved his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees. The Pharisees were self-proclaimed experts in the Old Testament. Uh, they were in the habit of telling people how to interpret the law. And yet 
though they had full knowledge of all of these messianic prophecies, they willfully and stubbornly refused to see that Jesus was he. Jesus called them blind leaders of the blind. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Well, you might have noted that our text today is a genealogy. And how could a genealogy, a record of our ancestors, be a fulfillment of messianic prophecy? Well, let's read it together, and I think you'll see as it unfolds. Begin reading in Luke 3, verse 23. When he began his earthly ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Helzi, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanon, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelethiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joseph, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Minah, the son of Mattatah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amimadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And as always, we ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. And when I read the genealogies, I also like to add a prayer of forgiveness for mispronouncing all of those words. I often wonder if all those people were here today, would any of them recognize how we pronounce their names? Probably not, but the Lord's merciful. I'd like for all of us to do a little exercise this morning. I did this last night. In your mind, not out loud, try to remember the names of your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents and go back as many generations as you can just to know their first name. Well, I, I remember my mom and dad's name, fortunately, Wayne and Joe. Uh, my grandparents are Robert and Mary and Everett and Bessie. I do know that my maternal grandmother's maiden name was Privet and my paternal grandmother's maiden name was Myers. That's as far as I could go. Most of us, if you're like me, can't even go back four generations in our family's history. And that tells us how different modern American culture is from ancient Jewish culture. Genealogy was tremendously important to Jewish people and they kept meticulous records for a number of reasons. Uh, number one was for property rights. There were no appraisal districts or courthouses to go to in those days. And so genealogical records were, were kept of what property was owned and for the purpose of inheritance so that you would know who rightly owned property. But also these records were kept because God had prescribed generations earlier what certain tribes were to do. And only certain tribes could carry out certain religious services. And that includes the Messiah. And that's where we want to camp out this morning. Jesus' genealogy fulfilled Old Testament messianic prophecy in at least four ways that I can tell. 
Uh, and those are listed for your outline this morning, though I'm going to go out of order than the outline. Now, we have Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> pardon me, in the Gospel of Luke. And as we might expect, each informs the other. Remember that God gave us four Gospels, each from a little different perspective. And so by reading all four, we get the fullest picture of what God wants us to know about him and about his plan. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of Matthew's genealogy is traced through Joseph. Now we know that Joseph, and Luke points this out, had no physical uh, relationship to Jesus. He was not his real father. And, and yet legally, Jesus would have to trace his ancestry through his father. And so Matthew does that, all the way back to Abraham. And here we have Luke, and it's believed that this is traced through Mary, though her name is not mentioned. There's different grandfathers and different names than in Matthew's genealogy. Both of them are correct, of course, in every way. They just go about it from different directions. The purpose of both of those genealogies is to verify that Jesus was qualified from a genealogical standpoint to be the Savior of Israel, and he, of course, was. And Luke goes back even farther than Abraham, all the way back to our first parent, Adam. Now, when my children practiced their catechism at night, one of the first questions they learned was, who is our first parents? And the answer is Adam and Eve. And so Adam, of course, was formed from the dust of the ground, according to the book of Genesis. And because Jesus is altogether man and yet altogether God, Luke indicates that by tracing his ancestry all the way back to Adam. Now, we see in the Gospel of Luke both the divinity, the fact that Jesus is God, and his humanity. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point this morning because I've already made it several times in this series already. Jesus is altogether God and altogether man. But, but there are several implications to that. That is, Jesus had emotions like you and I have. He experienced pain, joy, heartache, headache, hunger, thirst, fatigue, just like all of us. In fact, the book of Hebrews says he's sympathetic to us because he's gone through what we go through. He's tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. That is the difference between Jesus and us, among others. And this, of course, is Luke's point. Now, now we've been studying the book of Genesis in this room on Wednesday evenings, and we're going to take a little break from that this summer. But uh, we've made it all the way to the last section. And we've seen something very interesting develop through our study of Genesis. And that is, these are real people, of course. And there are a number of genealogical records in the book of Genesis called Toledoths, the generations of. And of course, that begins with Adam, right? Remember, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. And Abel was murdered by Cain. And then later on, they had another son, Seth. And so you have in the book of Genesis the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And we know that one of the descendants of Seth was Noah. And God started over with Noah, right? He destroyed the earth with, with a flood. And so we, we have the, the generations of Cain and they come to an end with the flood. And, and now you have starting over with Noah. Noah had three sons and their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and so what Genesis will do, it will list the genealogical record of the two ancillary figures, and then it will settle in on a main figure. And the main figure, of course, of Noah's sons was Shem, because it was the Semitic people. That's where we get that word Semitic from, by the way, the descendants of Shem, who God would use 
to bring through the Messiah. And of course, one of the descendants of Shem was the one man that God chose from, God chose from all the others on the planet Earth to be a blessing. And that, of course, was Abraham. And so let's start there. We, we've seen that Jesus is a son of Adam, meaning that he was altogether man. But he was also, more specifically, a son of Abraham. He was Jewish. Now, in the Old Testament, God chose to reveal his plan of redemption with a series of covenants, that is, promises and obligations. And the primary covenant of the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant, the one he made with Abraham. And you recall that we find that in Genesis chapter 12, among other places. Listen to it. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now there are a number of iterations of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the one we most often recite. And he says there that I'm going to give you a land. And then he says I'm going to give you descendants. And then I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now we know that uh, there was a long time and Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of that because Abraham, though he wasn't a, a doctor, he understood that for these promises to be fulfilled, he and his wife Sarah had to have offspring and they had none. And they began to worry and they thought maybe God needs some assistance. And uh, Sarah gave Abraham her handmaiden Hagar and he went into her and, and she conceived and had a son. His name was Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the fulfillment. He was not the son of promise. And so what the scripture does in Genesis, it gives us the descendants of Ishmael and it sets him aside. And then the son of promise is born, Isaac. And remember that Abraham, Sarah, that they're so happy until one day God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son Isaac and sacrifice him. And remember they loaded down the animals with the fuel for the fire and the servants, and they began to make their way to the mountain. And uh, when they got to the base of the mountain, Abraham said, you guys wait behind. And he and his son Isaac went up together. And Isaac, suddenly the, the light went off in his head. And he said, Father, we have the, the wood and we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And remember what Abraham said, the Lord will provide. And indeed they did as he bound up his son there, tied him up, put him on the altar. He lifted his arm to take his life and they heard the ram caught in the thicket, right? God indeed had provided a substitute. That of course was a foreshadowing and a typical prophecy that our heavenly father would sacrifice his son one day, the perfect lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, a substitute for us on the cross. And so here we have Abraham. And so after Abraham passes off the scene, God reaffirms his covenant promise to his offspring, Isaac. And then Isaac, of course, had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And so we have Esau's descendants in the book of Genesis. And then he's set aside. Those are the Edomite people. And then it settles upon Jacob. Jacob, of course, had 12 sons, one of whom was named Judah. And we know that uh, one of his descendants was a king. In fact, in uh, the 49th chapter of Genesis... Don't you hate it when somebody shuffles your notes, gets them out of order? In the 49th chapter of Genesis, Jacob is dying. So he calls his uh, sons and grandsons into him and he lays hands on each of them and he prophesies a prophecy over each one. And when he comes to Judah in Genesis chapter 49 verse 9, he calls Judah a lion's whelp, a young lion. And he says this, 
A lion of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from her, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so what he was prophesying is that Judah would have a kingly and a royal line of descendants. There's only one problem with that, that Israel didn't have a king for many more years. And yet here's God in his plan revealing that through his prophets. And we know that when the people finally did demand a king, they chose one not of the tribe of Judah. It was Saul, who was a Benjamite. But he proved very quickly that he was unworthy of that title. And so God raised up his chosen man, a man after his own heart, David. And this, of course, was part of God's eternal redemptive plan. And God also made a covenant with David, didn't he? That's our third point. Not only was Jesus a son of Adam, he was a son of Abraham. He was Jewish. And by the way, Jesus embraced his Jewishness, didn't he? Do you remember when he was speaking with the woman at the well? And she was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans had their worship practices. They worshiped up on Mount Gerizim. And of course, the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem in the temple. And there was a discussion about what true worship is. And Jesus put an end to that discussion by saying, salvation is of the Jews. And he wasn't just talking about Jerusalem and the temple. He was talking about himself. That it was through the Jewish people that God had promised to send a Savior. And, and he was that. And not only was he a son of Abraham, specifically, he was of the tribe of Judah. And more specifically than that, he was a direct descendant of David. And that's important because of the covenant that God made with David in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. As David was coming to the end of his life, God told him, Your days, when they're fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, oftentimes, Old Testament prophecies have an immediate fulfillment. That is often in the lifetime of the one hearing the prophecy or giving the prophecy. And then it has a secondary fulfillment later, and that is certainly the case here. Because God tells David that when you die, a direct descendant of yours is going to take your place on the throne and he's going to build a worship facility, a house to the Lord, and he's going to have an eternal kingdom. Now we know that when David died, his son took his place. That son's name was what? Solomon. And Solomon did indeed build the temple and it was a, a grand temple and he dedicated it to the Lord. But the second part of that equation is a little dicey because we know Solomon's kingdom was far from an eternal one, right? In fact, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne and Rehoboam was a horrible king. He listened to his advisors that told him, you've got to be more harsh than your father or the people are not going to respect you. You got to raise the taxes. You got to uh, conscribe the men into the military. You've got to put your foot down. And so he did that and the people rebelled. And remember the kingdom was divided into a northern and a southern kingdom at that point. And so from that point on you had uh, kings from the south and kings from the north. But neither one of those kingdoms are around today, right? And so is the Bible wrong when it says from David we come in an eternal kingdom? Of course, you know, the Bible is not wrong. And so it must have been speaking of someone else. And no doubt it was speaking of Jesus. You see, earthly kings all have one thing in common. They have a birth date, they have a hyphen, and they have a death date, right? Not so with Jesus. He is the eternal king. And so um, we know ultimately, and this is the point of saying all of that, 
that Jesus legally was a descendant of David. Isaiah said of the Messiah that his kingdom will have no end. And Luke makes that clear in the first two chapters that it's important that Jesus is seen as a descendant of David. By the way, that's why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem in the first place where he was born. By the way, what is the nickname of the city of Bethlehem? It's the city of what? David, because that's where David grew up. Remember, we see here that Luke traces the ancestry. Look at verse 32. The son of Jesse, that's David. The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon. You can go back to your Old Testament to the book of Ruth. And you see Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, right? And then just a couple of generations later, little David comes on the scene, a shepherd boy. Someone no one would have chosen except the Lord did. The Bible says that God chooses the base things of the world to confound the wise. Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. They thought he'd make a good king, but David was the youngest of his brothers. God chose him to be the one to give these wonderful messianic promises to. And Jesus traced his ancestry. You remember that when Caesar, who knew nothing about these prophecies, declared that all the Jewish people had to go back to the village of their ancestral homeland. And Joseph and Mary, to them, they knew exactly where they had to go. They went to Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Do you see where we're going with all this? God's sovereign, right? He starts all the way back in Genesis 1. And he has a plan, and that plan is unfolding just according to his plan. And all of that plan, which included, yes, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, was leading to the culmination of human history, that is the incarnation, the birth of the Savior. And the life of the Savior culminated in the cross, and then in the resurrection, and in the ascension, and then ultimately one day all of human history will culminate in the second coming of the Lord. And so here's the thing about the prophecies. They're in two categories. They have been fulfilled or they await being fulfilled, right? But all the promises of God, the scripture says, are yes and amen. They either have been fulfilled or they will be fulfilled. I hope that encourages your heart. But the most important claim that Jesus makes and that Luke makes indirectly here in this genealogical record is not that Jesus is the son of Adam, all of us are, not that he was the son of Abraham, Scripture says there's so many sons of Abraham that they're innumerable, the sands of the seashore, the stars in heaven. There are a lot of people that could trace their ancestry to David, but there's only one who's the son of God, right? Now Luke calls Adam here in verse 38 the son of God, but, but not in the same sense that Jesus is. He's the son of God in the sense that he had no earthly father, just as Jesus did not. But Jesus is different than Adam in that he is the eternal son of God, that he has always existed. And this is important. Get this in your mind. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, did not have his beginning in the womb of Mary, did not have his beginning in Bethlehem in a, in a stable. The eternal son of God is eternal. He has always existed and always will exist. Now, there was a time in history where he emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, poured himself out and took on human flesh and suffered death, even death of, of the cross. But he is uniquely the son of God. Now, Luke here is speaking of the divinity of Jesus. 
Up until this point, he's been showing the humanity of Jesus. Remember, all four of the gospel writers had a theme. And John, for example, had the theme of the deity of Jesus. In every chapter, he's showing that Jesus is more than a prophet. He's more than a man. He is indeed God in the flesh. And he began his gospel, John 1, 1, this way. In the beginning was the Word, the divine Logos. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Co-eternal. Everything that has been created has been created by him and through him. And nothing has been created that has been created except through him. So he's showing Jesus as God in every way. Now here's Luke who's established the humanity of Jesus, affirms also the deity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. We saw this last week, the uniqueness of Jesus in this respect. Colossians 2.9, speaking of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now there are individuals that we all know that we say they're godly, they're Christ-like. That is, they have the fruit of the Spirit. That is, they are looking a whole lot like Jesus. And yet we know that none of us is perfect, right? None of us is the exact representation. Only Jesus holds that title. In Him, all the fullness, all the attributes and the perfections of God the Father are on display in a bodily form. Now that's quite a um, claim to make, right? Pretty outrageous claim to make. And yet there are individuals in every generation of humanity, I suppose, who make such a claim. We can go back through history. The Roman Caesars at times claim to be gods. It's a very helpful way to keep your subjects under control, right? To tell them that you're God. The Egyptians, thousands of years earlier, all the Pharaohs claim to be gods. We see this in Africa, we, we see it in Europe, we see it all over the world, really. And, and today, there are people in every generation, even here in America, who claim to be God. Now, those people usually are institutionalized at, at some point or another, but it doesn't stop the fact that many of them claim to be God. And so here is one claiming to be God, to have all the attributes dwelling in him bodily. And so I think if you're going to make such a claim as Jesus did, it's important to have proof of that. Now, now we as Christians like to say that we walk by faith and not by sight. That, that is exactly right. The righteous will live by faith, Romans says. And yet, I hope you understand that, that as a Bible-believing Christian, your faith is not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. It, it is a reasonable faith, meaning... There's lots of evidence to the claims that Jesus makes. Let me just walk through a few of them with you. For one, there is the voice from heaven, right? Many, many people were there on, on the two occasions when God the Father declared audibly, Behold my beloved Son, in who I am well pleased. But that, again, is isolated uh, to just a few people in the bigger scope of things. Now, the Holy Spirit, of course, testified to that, as we said, by descending as as a dub, but there were many, many other proofs. In fact, that's what the scripture called Jesus' signs and wonders, many proofs. One of those proofs, of course, was, were the holy prophets who wrote hundreds of years. Did you know that Isaiah wrote his prophecy in Isaiah 53 that is so perfectly fulfilled in Jesus nearly 800 years before Jesus was born? 
In fact, many of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled so accurately that many later scholars and biblical critics said there's no way that was written 800 years. And so they began to say, well, it must have been written many years after that, throwing uh, dispersions upon the authorship of many of these books. For, for example, the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel lays out the future kingdoms of the world at that time yet to come. The, the Romans, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, even Alexander the Great is to be found in the book of Daniel, long time before he was born. And so historians say, oh, it couldn't have been written before the fact. It's too accurate. That's a lot of proof, right? That the Bible is, is actually true. But then there were witnesses that came on the scene, such as we saw in Luke 2. You remember Anna and Simeon there in the temple, these, these two old saints who had been waiting on the consummation of Israel. And when they saw him, they were ready to die. And then in Jesus' lifetime, we're going to study this over the next year in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus performed many miracles and signs, didn't he? First thing he did was he turned the water into wine at a marriage feast in Cana. But he did some greater things than that. He healed the leper's spots. He caused the blind to see. The deaf received their hearing. The crippled took up their bed and walked. Jesus himself walked upon the water. He calmed the sea. But he did something greater than that. He caused the dead to live, didn't he? Jesus said there's something even greater than that. He forgave sins. And only God can forgive sins. And so here we have Jesus proving time and time again that he's who he claimed to be and who the Bible claims him to be. But I think there's an even greater and more telling sign and proof of Jesus' deity than that. And that is the empty tomb. In fact, when the Apostle Peter began his preaching ministry on the day of Pentecost, that's the very point he made. He was in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by his fellow Jewish people. And he began to talk about the Old Testament. He began to talk about the prophecy of the Messiah. And, and then he began to show that there was one greater than even David. Now, there are a few people in Jewish history that are untouchable. Moses gave the law, Father Abraham, the father of all those having faith, and then there's King David, revered by the Jewish people. And Peter was not casting aspersions upon David, but he said this, here's what we know about King David. We could go down to where he's buried and we could take away the stone and guess what we're going to find inside of David's tomb? David. <laughs> or what's left of him, right? Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the only one who by his own power is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. No matter how great a man you are, no matter how great a woman you are, no matter how much uh, you accomplish in your lifetime, Hebrew says it's appointed to you once to die. And Jesus literally died on the cross, but he also on the third day literally was raised from the dead. And the scripture says he is alive today. For 40 days after his resurrection, he was witnessed by hundreds of people. And in the presence of many of them, he ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven where he is today seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming again and everyone's going to see that. And this time he's not going to come as Isaiah predicted the first time. The suffering servant, humble, nothing attractive about him, beaten with stripes, silent before his accusers. This time he's going to come as a conquering king and a judge 
of the living and the dead. And just as in the Old Testament they looked forward to the first coming of Jesus, we in the church age look forward to His second coming. Or we should. But there may be someone here today you're not so sure. Because you don't know that if He were to come you'd be ready for that. Or if you were to die today you'd be ready for that. Because maybe you've been depending upon something other than the grace of the Lord Jesus for your right standing with God. Maybe you thought He'll make an exception for you because you're such an upright citizen. Or maybe you kind of had the same attitude the Jewish people did. We have these genealogical records. My parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were good Baptist people. Surely I'll go to heaven. You know what John the Baptist said to those Pharisees? Don't say we are children of Abraham because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks on the ground. Don't say that you're right with God because dad was or mom was or grandma was. What about you? Have you come to an end of yourself where you recognized that you personally have rebelled against your Creator. You're a sinner. You've transgressed His law. He said, here's the line, you've gone over it. He says, here's perfection, you've fallen short of it. That, that puts you in the same category as all the sons of Adam, guilty, with a death sentence over your head. But the wonderful good news is that God didn't leave us in that shape. His eternal redemptive plan, even all the way back to Genesis 3, was to send a Savior into the world, to break into human history, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is to fulfill righteousness and then be that substitutionary atoning sacrifice upon the cross. God's justice satisfied in the death of His Son. What about you? Have you received salvation by His grace through simple faith and belief in Him? Have you repented of your sins, renounced them, and turned towards Jesus? If not, what about today? Would you today declare your allegiance to Jesus? Would you declare that you're done with that old life and that with His help you're going to live for Him till He calls you home or till He comes for you in glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And even in the genealogical record, Lord, we find evidence of Your sovereignty. Father, we're grateful that Jesus is altogether God, yet altogether man. He's sympathetic with our afflictions. He understands what it is to be hungry and thirsty and brokenhearted. Father, we're grateful that He fulfilled His destiny and His calling through His death, burial, and resurrection. And Lord, we look forward with great anticipation to His second coming. But Lord, we know according to your word, the reason he hasn't come yet is you're patient and kind and merciful and slow to anger. And you're giving people today another opportunity to repent and be saved. And Lord, we don't know if there'll be another, but we know there's an opportunity today. I pray even now, in the quietness of this moment, that your spirit would move on hearts. Convict them of sin and judgment and righteousness. Call them to yourself. Give them the faith to believe. Whatever good accomplished today, we'll give you credit and honor. Thanks for Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.